so it feels like it's been a chaotic few years where it's a chaotic time at the moment really we had uh, brexit we had covid which has personally affected me this week we've we've got the energy prices war in ukraine we've had just recently again when i started writing this sermon i didn't even have to mention the the mini budget that we've had recently which has sort of thrown everything into turmoil again the queen has died <clears throat> I, and that's just the sort of global things that's not even including the things that have gone on in our own personal lives that have brought sort of a, that chaos and that uncertainty into our world and these are the sort of things like these are big things as well these are not just minor things these are huge things that are good they're going to leave a mark they're going to leave a, a big bruise i think on this nation this generation personally on us we're going to be affected by them but daniel the book we're starting today begins in a kind of similar situation the time of great chaos and uncertainty and an upheaval in a few sentences just the opening sentences where this this traumatic event is explained with just a few words that judah is conquered jerusalem is sacked the temple is looted the treasures from god's temple are taken and placed in temple in babylon to the god uh bell or marduk the 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 chief god of the babylonians and this event the the exile the conquest of judah by babylon was so traumatic so um damaging so catastrophic that israel as a nation was still conscious of it still carrying those scars hundreds of years later when jesus was around the pharisees were motivated to keep the law by a desperate desperation that this the exile this conquest should never happen again this event we read about that sort of starts the book of daniel was a massive thing for the history of israel for the the theology of israel for the the consciousness and, and psyche of the nation and it's a time of chaos it's a time of defeat israel has fallen how how could this happen we're god's chosen people and yet we've been conquered daniel is a a strange book there's some familiar well-known stories in there daniel in the lion's den shadrach meshach and abednego in the, the fiery furnace those kind of things and then there's a lot of very strange not so well known not so talked about visions and dreams and prophecies and sort of apocalyptic writings but today's story quite simple in a way but it has a familiar rhythm a familiar beat about it for the rest of the book because the story we read about in daniel chapter one that opens the book is really about the what the whole book is about it's really touches on the theme of the whole book it is a story about what do you do when your culture says well this is what you want you this is what we want you to do this is what we want you to this is how we want you to behave and it god is saying i think you need to be different what do you do in that moment 
of tension. What do you do when Babylon wants one thing and God wants something else? And how do you make a choice to live in that way? How does Daniel make that choice? And this book, Daniel is sort of constantly coming up against this issue, Daniel and his friends. And Daniel is almost a representative for you, for me, for the people of God in whatever situation, in whatever culture we find ourselves in. How do we remain faithful to God in a culture that is alien, that has nothing in common with God's culture, that looks down on God's culture? How do you remain faithful to God when everything around you is actually devoted to a different God, worships a different God in, in Babylon's case, Bel or, or Marduk uh, or whatever name you wanted to give him or whichever of the, the pantheon of gods? How do you live out your faith in a world that's actually hostile to your faith? How do you hold on to your belief that, you know, I think God is the ultimate voice, the ultimate authority, when everything around you, every other voice, everything in your culture seems to be saying, well, actually, these are the voices that are winning. God's voice is gone. God's voice is dead. God is defeated. God has lost. And these other gods are stronger. That's what this book is about. In a time of chaos, when everything has changed, everything you thought you knew has been taken away. Even your name, in Daniel's case, uh, and Daniel's friends, even your names have been changed to reflect, to give honour to a foreign God. How do you remain faithful to the vision that God has? That's what the book is about. And that's what Daniel and his friends wrestle with throughout the book. That's what Daniel is, is struggling with uh, here, as they're taken into this, against their will into the service of a foreign power. Uh, and as part of their process of being you know, the best and the brightest of Israel becoming Babylonian civil servants. As part of this process, they are being groomed, they are being trained, they are being fed and cared for by the state. And the thing is, they're enjoying the best food, we're told, choice food, luxurious food. This is good food. They're being fed. But Daniel and his friends say, we don't want to defile ourselves with this food. We don't want to defile ourselves by eating this. Defile themselves. What do they mean? How is this defiling? Well, we know that Israel had lots of food laws, like the most famous of which, of course, is uh, no pork. You can't eat pork. But does that mean that the Babylonians were trying to get them to eat pork? You know, that they were here's a plate of ham sandwiches Daniel I don't think so I mean the the text says you know this is good quality food this is not it's not saying they're just poor I think it's clear there's something else going on here that eating this food that they were being offered something about it would have been defiling to them in a spiritual sense so I think it's likely, it's probable that it makes sense that this food that they're being offered, this food that's being given to these young men who have been trained up to be leaders in Babylon, was perhaps food that had come from maybe had been used in a, a pagan ritual, maybe it had come from the temple, maybe been offered in sacrifice to, to Baal or to uh, other Babylonian gods. And then, then it was taken and brought to these young men and said, here you go, here's some food, eat this food. Anyway, there was something about it that would, that Daniel and his friends said, no, this would defile us. This is not food that would enrich us spiritually. This is food that would defile us. 
involved probably in some way with religious ceremonies. And the thing is, just to, to stress, this is not, you know, the dregs, not they're being given the scrapings from the bottom of the barrel. This is food they should have been honoured to. This is probably food that went to the highest classes, the priestly class and all that kind of thing. And they're being offered this, but they say, no, we can't do this. Our conscience won't allow us to eat this food. And Daniel makes a deal. Daniel and his friends make a deal with the official in charge who's looking after them. And then they say, well, look, why don't we try our diet for a while, a week, and you can look at the results for yourself and, you know, you judge for yourself. And they have their own diet. Uh, just, it says, just, you know, plain food, vegetables, water, not compared to the, the luxurious food they were offered. And we're told in the text, you know, they look fantastic. They are glowing with health. And the officials say, well, you know what? Everyone can go on the Daniel diet now. Everyone can go on the diet that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, um, are eating. And I imagine that may not have made Daniel and his friends very popular. Maybe, you know, it's, um, as you read through Daniel and you see the amount of problems that the officials in Babylon tried to make for Daniel and the others you, you maybe you wonder if some of them had come up in Daniel's class Daniel's training and they just remember Daniel as the guy who took all their nice food away as the guy who got them eating vegetables and water but um, that's speculation but I think what isn't speculation is the fact that it seems unlikely I think that Daniel and the other three were the only Israelites who were a part of this program. We're told in, in this passage, we're told, you know, that they are from the tribe of Judah. The, the wording is quite ambiguous as to whether they're the only ones from the tribe of Judah. But we know that uh, Israel, Judah, when it was conquered, wasn't just the tribe of Judah. It was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And I think it's unlikely that Israel had, you know, only, only these four young men who were suitable candidates to be trained up as, as Babylonian civil servants. In short, I think it's likely there were probably other Israelites there, not just these four. There were probably others who were a part of this program who said nothing, who didn't object like uh, Daniel and his friends had done, who, who, who went along with this new life they were living, you know, when in Rome, just fit in a new culture. This is our life now. Maybe they said, this is where we are, you know, and who can blame them? They had hoped and trusted in God, and yet God seemed to have abandoned them. God had been defeated. The Babylonians could say, well, if your God's so great, your God's so strong, how come we won? How come our gods must be stronger than yours? And who of us has never just done something to fit in? Who of us has never, you know, just done something because, well, everyone else is around us is doing, everyone else is focusing on this, everyone else is focusing on money or uh, popularity or anything like that. So uh, I'm just going to go along with it and I'm just going to do what everyone else is doing, think what everyone else is thinking, say what everyone else is saying. Who of us has never done that? <coughs> but Daniel and his friends, they drew a line in the sand and they said, we are not going to cross that line. We are not going to live that way. We are going to be different. 
And the book of Daniel, as you read it, just seems to be chapter after chapter of Daniel and his friends just getting into trouble because they're constantly coming up against these lines in the sand. Every every chapter is, seems to be Daniel drawing a new line in the sand and saying, yeah, we respect you, Nebuchadnezzar, or whichever king is in charge. We are... <clears throat> We're not rebels. We're not resentful. We're not trying to cause trouble and undermine you or undermine what you're doing. We want to serve you. We want to prosper you. We wish you well, but there are things we won't do. There are things we will not go along with because for us, our heart belongs to someone else. I will serve you to the best of my ability, Daniel and his friends say, but you can't have my heart. You can never have my heart because my heart belongs to someone else. And this seems to be the book of Daniel, this constant tension when your heart belongs to God and the world demands other things of you, that you give, you give your heart to something else. How do you cope with that? How do you deal with that? Now, we spent time recently, the past few weeks, looking at the new church vision. Um, Oz has spoken about that. And I say it's a new vision, but our core goals, those values of transforming lives, communities and culture has not changed. Those, And in a way, there's nothing new about the vision. It may be uh, differently worded, maybe the focus is changed slightly, but the, but the vision is the same as it always has been really it's about seeking god's agenda rather than the world's agenda and that's a difficult thing to do and in fact if you look at the vision if you look at the vision booklet and look at the things we're trying to hopefully see god do in the church you think oh this is different how are we going to do that how are we going to do that well that I think the vision really fulfilling that vision is the easy part really the hard part is what is behind it because really all we have to do is give our heart give our lives to God and we'll fulfill that church vision we won't even have to try it will just happen as a result of giving our hearts to God yet but that is the difficult thing that is the the tricky thing because that does not happen by accident you don't sort of accidentally give your life to god you don't accidentally stumble into god's will and, and find yourself fulfilling god's agenda without really thinking about it if you don't consciously seek that out pursue that make that your goal devote yourself to that you will just inevitably get swept along by the tide of what everyone else is talking about, what everyone else is doing, what everyone else thinks is important. Like in this situation in Daniel 1, where we assume there were those Israelite young men who were a part of this training program and just went along, just got swept along because they had not given their hearts wholeheartedly to God. But Daniel Daniel and his friends had decided to give their hearts to God. And as a consequence, they had to say, they had to step out and say, we are going to say something. We are going to do something. We are going to be different here. They had to do that. It wasn't going to just happen by accident. I think most of us 
want to be different. Most of us want to live differently to the world around us. Most of us do want to trust God. Most of us do want to build our houses on the rock rather than the sand. Most of us want to give our hearts wholeheartedly to God rather than to anything else. I really think most of us do. <laughs> but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to trust God, particularly in the middle of chaos. It's hard to trust God when it looks like God is actually losing control or losing the battle or God has lost the battle. It's difficult to trust God in those circumstances. Now, I personally, I have plenty of reasons to trust God. I would say God has never let me down. Not once. I look back on my life and, you know, I've spoken about things in my past before and not everything has been rosy and perfect, but God's never failed me. God's never abandoned me. God has never let me down. God has never not provided. I can say that now after all these years of learning these lessons. I think this is one of the realities is when you start out in your Christian faith, you have all these these promises of God. You have all these things. Yeah, you think that's true, but you never you don't know it's true until you see it happen. You don't know for certain that it's true until God actually follows through. And there's always that doubt until um, God actually delivers. And the more you see that happen, the the more faith your faith builds up the more you feel okay i think yeah okay i feel like i can trust god with my finances i feel like i can trust god with my life if i just make his agenda my agenda if i focus on him i trust him to take care of all these other things i think that is true and i i know that in my life but the truth is it's sometimes still hard to trust it's sometimes still hard to to trust God when you can't be sure if he's working if you can't see him working I think that's the thing when you trust God and he comes through then yeah of course okay yeah I trust you God but when you're trusting God and you say I'm trusting you with this thing God and I'm and I can't I'm not going to see the results I'm not going to see the fruit I don't know if you're going to come through but you said you would but I can't see for certain that you are or that you will. It can be hard to believe God. It can be hard to trust God that that He is He's working. <coughs> Excuse me. And I've had ruddy battles with God over the years over some of these issues. These ideas of God, well, you have promised something, you very clearly promised something. And I can't see you doing it. So are you doing it? I don't know. I kind of have to trust that you are because you said you are, but because I can't see it, I'm not sure and I'm not happy about it, particularly God. I've had these kind of running battles with God over the years. Various things crop up and I keep coming back to God saying, well, OK, God, I trust you, but I'm not happy about trusting you. I'm kind of not sure you're going to keep your word. I just kind of have to, you know, keep my fingers crossed that you will. Something happened to me recently that I want to tell you about. Um, a few <clears throat> months ago, we had a staff retreat, a staff um, away day, and I had to prepare some stuff for that. And one of the things I prepared, one of the things I thought we would do is um, we were looking, I want us to look at the idea of do we really believe God is who the Bible says he is? What do we think about God? Do we really believe these things about God? And I thought 
one of the things to do would be to print some verses out, put them in a, a bowl, um, and people, and these were verses about who God was, things the Bible says about who God was, and people could pull one out and look at it, and I was going to say, reflect on that. Do you really believe that's true about God? What it says there on that piece of paper, do you really believe that, you know, that is true? So, so for example, you might find uh, a verse from 1 John, you know, God is love, and so you pull out that verse, do you really believe that God is love? That kind of thing. So I went onto a website, you know 50 verses uh about that you know about who god is uh and it's sort of more like 38 verses about who god is and 12 that kind of vaguely fit but we put them in so we could say there were 50 that kind of website and i printed i picked about a dozen of ones that i thought really clearly said this is a biblical statement about who god is what his character is like printed them out cut them up put them into a bowl so on and uh we had our <clears throat> retreat and I don't think, I don't know if anyone did it. I, it was kind of an optional activity. I didn't do it at the time. So I brought all this stuff home. And when I got home, I thought, you know what? I'll do it now. I'll, um, I'll do it now. So I pulled out a verse and I opened it. It was Numbers, verse number 23 about God not changing. And I read it and I thought, oh, that's quite, you know, God doesn't change. He's not going to wake up one day and decide, you know what? I don't love you anymore, James. Um, he, you know he doesn't change his mind that kind of thing and I thought oh, that's quite nice so I thought about that for a while and put it back but anyway later that day that evening I was tidying up and I was getting all my papers that I'd used and didn't need any more from the retreat and so on taping recycling and I picked up all these small slips of papers and I carried I was carrying them out of the room and as I got to the door I turned around and one of the slips of papers had fallen on the floor so I picked it up and I opened it and it was the same verse, Numbers 23, 19. Now, when things like that happen, some of the time it's just a coincidence. But I think, you know, it never hurts to just stop and say, OK, God, that seemed like a coincidence. But is there, are you trying to tell me something here? And so I looked at this verse again, Numbers 23, 19, and it felt like God was saying to me, look, James, I gave you this earlier, but you weren't really paying attention. You read it. You didn't really think about it. You didn't really catch what I was trying to say. But because I love you, I'm giving you another chance. I'm giving you a second chance. So look closely. And so I looked at this verse again, Numbers 23, 19. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And as I read that, it was those last two lines. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? See, there are lots of things I think I need in my life, but at that moment, I really, really needed that. I really, really needed God who sort of forcefully grabbed me round the chin, turned my face to his and said, James, I do keep my promises. I do act. Because I was in the middle of one of those running battles. I was in the middle of one of those questions of, OK, God, you've promised this. Are you going to do it? 
I don't, I may never see you fulfill it. You've said you do it, but I may never see you do it. So, okay, I'll just have to go along with it. Just God saying, no, James, I will. I do keep my promises. And as we looked at this passage, I thought of Daniel in this time of chaos, when it looked like God had abandoned his people, despite the evidence of his eyes, said, no, I think God keeps his promises. I think God is true. <coughs> and I just want to leave you with one idea, I think, one thing from this passage, one truth that I think Daniel held on to all throughout this book, a truth that undergirds all the decisions that Daniel and his friends make throughout this. And that is that, that despite the defeat of Judah, despite the failure of Israel, despite the fact that everything around them had fallen apart, despite the fact that everything they believed to be true was being challenged and upended, despite the fact that it seemed that other gods were stronger than Yahweh, they, their God, I think Daniel and his friends held on to the truth that God will win that god will win and i think in the chapter we've read we see this outwardly things are terrible and it's chaotic and horrible but the writer of daniel throws in those hints those hints that actually no god is going to win at the beginning they write just casually you know god it's god who's delivered israel into babylon's hand it's not marduk it's not bell it's not any of the Babylonian gods, it's not Nebuchadnezzar who's done this, God has delivered Israel into Babylon's hands. And in that opening chapter, you see it coming up and <coughs> again, when Daniel says, we're not going to do this, we're going to make a stand here, we're going to try something different. The official is willing to give them an opportunity because as the author of Daniel, the writer of Daniel says, because God's actually already been at work in this guy's heart, softening his heart, making him look favourably upon Daniel and his friends. Now, do you think Daniel knew this? Do you think Daniel and his friends stood around saying, oh, well, of course, you know, Jerusalem was conquered because it's all part of God's purposes or or because you know of our sin or oh and of course these guys are well disposed for us because god's at work in their lives you know making things easy for i don't think daniel necessarily knew those things then i don't think i mean who of you looks at people and says oh i know how they feel you know the way they feel about me that's god that's made them feel we don't generally go through life thinking that way about things i don't know that daniel and his friends did either but that didn't matter to them they didn't need to to see these things they didn't know to know these things to still believe and hold on to the fact that god was going to win and in our world it looks like things are in chaos but god's going to win that's true we might be worried and afraid about how things are going in our culture god is going to win we may be anxious about the future and the uncertainty that's coming about because of the financial instability at the moment god 
is going to win. There's we see evil people making wars, engaging in corruption and getting away with it, injustice being created, conspiracies being created so that we can have someone to blame for life not being the way we want it to be. But the truth is that God is going to win. Nothing will change that. And although Daniel is sent against this epic backdrop, we're going to see vision, you know, before we finish the end of the book, there's visions of of um the end of the world and angels and spiritual warfare and all kinds of things. But this is really a book dealing with how do individuals, how do people respond in the day to day life of, you know, those challenges and choices when the vision of the world comes up against God's vision. And it happens to be set in the courts of Babylon, but it could be set in your living room or my kitchen because it's really not just about the big picture. It's about men and women who are able to say, you know what, because God is going to win the big picture, I can trust him with the little picture too. I can trust him with, with my little picture, my life too. You see, we're surrounded by all these little gods that want to capture our hearts. <laughs> the gods of greed and pride and lust. Do you believe that God can win there too? Our lives may be touched by grief, by despair, by fear. Do you know God will win there as well? Now, these kind of battles are not easy, but have you lost all hope? Have you given up all hope? Or do you believe, do you dare to believe that God can win those battles too, those little picture battles, those day-to-day -day challenges of your life. And if you do believe that, then why can't you step out of that tide and live differently and not be swept along and obsess over the same things that our culture says, this is what you need to obsess about. And you can be different, radically different, because ultimately you are convinced, you know what? God's going to win. God's going to win. Because that is how Daniel made his choices. That's how the followers of God have made their choices throughout the ages. Because underneath, there's this, this foundational belief that ultimately God's going to win. God will be victorious. And this is how Jesus lived. This is how Jesus made his choice. Despite knowing that his obedience was ending death, we're told he, he went for the hope that was set before him, the hope that God would win. Death would not have the final word. The devil would not have the final word. Bel, Marduk, whatever gods you want to set yourself against will not have the final word. God has the final word. God will win. And the crucifixion, nothing looks more like defeat than the crucifixion. Nothing looks more like God has been defeated. God has lost and the other kings are running the show. The other kings are winning. Nothing supports that idea more than the crucifixion. But the cross teaches us this truth that we see in Daniel and at times we feel maybe in short supply in our lives. The truth that God will win.